Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Emma Lowy. Emma is author of Return to Nature, the new science of how natural landscapes restore us. She's also co-author of The Spirit Almanac, a modern guide to ancient self-care, as well as the senior sustainability editor at Mind Body Green. Her writing focuses on the links between human health and environmental health and has been featured on Grist, Bloomberg News, and Bustle, among others. I can't wait to chat with her about her new book, so let's get into it. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Whitney. Excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I've been thinking a lot about your book, and I can't wait to unpack it with you. Yay. Can't wait to dive in. So the book's called Return to Nature, the New Science of How Natural Landscapes Restore Us. And it's divided into eight sections. And that was part of what was special beyond all the specialness of the book. And we'll get into everything. It was really unique how you divided it and what you decided to include in each section. So just to give the lay of the land, can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I I knew from the beginning that I wanted to organize the book into landscapes and, you know, each chapter, there are eight chapters, like you said, and each one focuses on a different, you know, well-known popular landscape in nature. So for example, there's, you know, an ocean chapter, mountains, desert. And the reason I thought it'd be interesting to do it that way, I think it's partially just due to the fact that a lot of people can feel a certain connection to a a particular landscape in nature. You know, I know I grew up by the coast, so I always really feel connected to the water. So I just thought that would be an interesting sort of way in for people to sort of, you know, consider why they do feel pulled to certain landscapes over others. And I also just thought it'd be a good way to organize this information. You know, I think that there's a lot of really fascinating research going on in the space right now about why getting outside is so good for us. And I'd seen in the past, you know, research on things like forest bathing and also just more general green space research. But I wondered like, huh, could I, you know, find enough for these individual landscapes to sort of organize that information that way? I just thought as a writer, that would be an interesting sort of exercise for me. Well, you definitely did. And it's, yes, again, just to reiterate, it's kind of this combination of healing, symbolism, research about engaging with different kinds of landscapes mixed with some interesting exercises to help you deepen your connection with each landscape. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, a lot of times in my work, I try and sort of balance the spiritual with the scientific. And I I think they do go together. So it's always fun to explore both sides of things. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that this book was so meaningful for me personally is because I'm a nature lover who also lives in a huge city. And I admit that I've had the privilege to travel. But this book really made me stop and think because I used to use terms like, oh, I'm going to book this trip and get my nature fix. And 
In the book, you talk about the distinction between wilderness not being the same as nature and that confusing those two might even be problematic. So can you help us understand that distinction? Yeah, I mean, I think that word choice is always, you know, important, especially when you're, you know, thinking about this particular topic. You know, I think words like wilderness historically have been used to sort of describe a natural landscape that is totally void of human contact and it's just pristine, wild place. And, you know, that's even been used as a harmful term to, in a colonial sense, to kick people off of, kick indigenous people off of their land. So I think that it's a personal decision how you want to think about the natural world and how you sort of want to, what you want to call it. I use the term nature in the book, but even, you know, since I finished writing, I've, I've chatted with people who actually prefer terms like outdoors or outside just to sort of further reduce that barrier that people might feel between the outside worlds. And when you use a term like nature, it can maybe evoke feelings of like, oh, I need to go to Yellowstone or I need to get out of the city where I live to have these experiences, but I, I didn't want anyone to feel that way when they read this book. I wanted to just make it clear that you can really have these, you know, natural interactions with natural environments wherever you may live. I'm a city dweller too. So that was a big, a big goal of mine. That's interesting. And it's interesting how it's come up and you've even widened the aperture post-writing. So okay, so maybe yeah, we can't make it to Yellowstone or get that trip to the sea but we've got a modest backyard or even a city park, you know, why is it important more than ever? What do we know now about connecting with even the smallest patch of green? So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I think that as humans, we or I, I shouldn't generalize, but a lot of people do spend the majority of their time indoors. And, you know, the, the latest numbers that I had found were, they were done in the 1990s, but it was essentially, I think it was like 95 or 96%. Um, Americans spend 95 or 96% of their time inside, which I thought was just really staggering. And a big sort of theme of the book is just this idea that the further disconnected we become from the natural environment, I think it it does not help our own mental health. I think we need to, to get outdoors for the sake of our livelihoods, but it also doesn't help the environment. So I think this idea that the climate crisis and the mental health crisis we're seeing are sort of overlapping is definitely one that I really believe. And I think the more we can get outside, the better we will feel. And I think the more connected we feel to the world around us, it can also pay off in things like the environmental actions we choose to take or the way that we sort of go about our daily lives with a bit more reverence for, for the earth. Absolutely. And I like, I like how you explain that because obviously one thing that really struck me when I was reading is how much comes up, you know, not only you were very careful to not only talk about how we can enjoy and benefit from outdoors, but how it can be a reciprocal relationship, right? Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's another sort of thing I was trying to be very cautious of is I don't want I don't think nature should be presented as a pill because that sort of implies that it's for human benefit. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just about forming that that relationship. Yes. Well, you talked a little bit. Well, you mentioned mental health as an important. What are some of the maybe known or less known benefits of mental health? Just if any of us need an excuse to hop outside today. Yeah, absolutely. So they're really far reaching. 
But I would say, you know, the main ones that I focus on in the book are, you know, things like stress reduction. So we tend to feel less stress when we take a walk outside. And then that, of course, can have, you know, physical ramifications as well. So things like lower cortisol levels, you know, lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, all of these things are good for our overall health and longevity. So that's a big one. I'd say another area where nature seems to be really beneficial is with helping reduce things like rumination. So repetitive thought loops that I know we all have about like, oh, this, you know, this negative thing is sort of playing on a repeat in your head. Getting outside seems to really help break that cycle and, you know, widen, widen the awareness in a way. Absolutely. And another piece of that that was interesting to me as you're talking about how we've moved away from the land and a staggering number of inside time spent I always have this sense that I, I I kind of intrinsically know that it's not relaxing us in the way that maybe our bodies were intended to to zone out to a TV show or you know scroll and what is the what is the argument for taking a break in nature versus doing something more passive or tech related inside? So it's interesting. I mean, you use the word passive. And I think that what research is finding, interestingly, is, you know, we're so we feel drawn to our phones as a sort of break. And I know I'm so guilty of this, like, I'll take a break, and I'll just instinctively pull my phone up to relax or have that passive moment. But in essence, a lot of the most of the psychologists that I talked to said that being on your phone is actually a very active experience, you know, it really draws on your cognitive resources, it requires, like your full, full attention, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And then of course, it can also be very emotionally triggering if you see something that is upsetting or traumatic to you. So in that sense, getting outside, that's interesting, the main sort of theory as to why stepping outdoors is so good for our mental health is called the attention restoration theory. And it essentially says that when we step outside, you know, we're surrounded by sites that do, you know, draw our attention in, but they're not as cognitively draining. So if you think about watching a sunset, for example, or something like that, you know, you're, you're, you're paying attention, but you're not necessarily, your wheels aren't turning in the same way. And they're finding that that can be, seems to be very relaxing for the mind. And it's almost like a cognitive break in that sense. So ever since learning that I've, I've tried to implement the practice of, you know, if I reach for my phone on a break instinctively, I try and put it down and, you know, walk to the window instead and maybe just look out the window to truly, you know, restore my mind versus just keep it churning away. I love that. And I also really enjoyed reading about the concept of green exercise. And because I think that like this morning, I was planning to go on a walk with a friend and usually we just would walk the city blocks, but I was like, nope, we're going to a park. Emma's spoken. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And it felt, yes, your book has already inspired me to make changes. So tell us about green exercise. Yeah. I mean, green exercise is really interesting. I think one thing to note with all of this research is it can be hard to disentangle what are the benefits of how much are the benefits of getting outside are due to the fact that we typically are moving when we're outdoors, you know, walking, like you work with your friend or running. So I think green exercise sort of tries to isolate that by comparing the same exercise done indoors. So walking on a treadmill, for example, versus walking outdoors in a green space, like a park to sort of make it a more apples to apples comparison. 
And what they're finding is really interesting. You know, it seems like when we exercise outdoors, we tend to be able to recover from the exercise quicker. So our our blood pressure returns to normal faster. And we also rate the exercise more highly and even are able to put in more physical exertion when we're exercising outdoors. So, you know, there seems to be just something about getting out into a green space that can really enhance that that exercise. And they don't, they don't know exactly what it is. I think that's still pretty new field of research and they suspect it might have something to do with the fact that exercising outdoors also just tends to be more enjoyable. And, you know, when you are able to see that bit of green or feel the wind in your face, it, it just makes the experiment experience better. And maybe it makes you more you know willing to, to exert yourself harder. Mm-hmm. And look forward to it in a way that just seems like it just makes sense, but I love hearing the science behind it, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Just makes it more, more sustainable, I guess. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit. One, one thing I'd never thought about that was really interesting for me in the book is how you discussed the science behind how we maybe use and engage and think about nature as our age changes. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this is really interesting. And this is something I've been thinking about more too lately, just because I'm doing some other work, thinking about how children see the natural world and how they sort of ideate about the climate. But I think in general, you know, this wasn't a huge focus of the book, but I did go into it in one chapter. And the research is really showing that children, I think we can all, or a lot of us can relate to this, you know, children are very explorative in the outdoors when they're young. And I think it's really a place where our imaginations can can run free and much more so than an indoor environment or, or when we're on a screen. And I think that there's a real inherent value in that and having a space where you can just, you know, let your mind wander. As we get older, I think that becomes a bit less common. But yeah, I do wonder I think this could be a whole other you know, topic for a book, but yeah, I wonder if finding ways to to you know inspire that sort of childlike awe and wonder outdoors, I think, could real really do do wonders for for mental health. And as we get older, I think that I also should say, you know, obviously, when we're children, parts of nature might be really scary. <laughs> so I think that's important to to remember as well. And you know, even as adults, not every landscape will feel comfortable or familiar to everyone. So I think through the life change, through the life stage, that can that experience can sort of shift as well. And navigating that can bring its own sort of challenges and, and opportunities. What if we're caregivers for seniors who tend to just like stay inside and not get out much? Yeah. I mean I think it almost becomes full circle in a sense that when you get older, you might also see nature as a bit more threatening just because, you know, it's not they don't have, you know, handrails, for example, or just, you know, it's not as accessible if you aren't as mobile or physically active. So I think just creating a comfortable environment and that's going to, everyone is going to have their own definition of what comfort is. But I think that could be just really helpful, whether it's sitting on a park bench together or even opening a window. I think those little exposures can be super, super helpful one woman who I interviewed for the book, who is so incredible, she works for this group in Canada who is working to bring nature experiences to those at the end of life and then help them sort of return to the the parts of nature that they've really enjoyed through their livelihoods. And speaking to her was just so inspiring to hear about the real sense of connection that can exist between someone and nature at the end of their lifetime. 
that gives us a lot to think about. So yes, thank you. I, in each section of the book, you, you you go through interesting research, but also some practices. So I wanted my listeners to actually get a flavor, both for the language, because it's beautiful and reflective, but also kind of the flow. So I'm going to, I chose to dive in a little bit more. I'm going to talk about the oceans and coasts, the ice and snow, and then urban areas. We touched on a little bit, but maybe we'll circle back because I think it's kind of people could make some guesses with oceans and coasts. But when I thought of ice and snow, I definitely, (laughs) my mind didn't go to the same places. So let's start with ocean. And I'm going to just read a quick passage from this section to ground us in this. Clearly something happens to us when we taste salt air, hear the sound of gulls and feel waves lap at our ankles. A relatively new field of blue space research is starting to uncover what exactly that something is and how we can find more of it. So tell us a little bit about blue space research and why being near water is inherently soothing. So it's a really interesting field. I think a lot of the research on uh, nature and human health, it started in in green green space, but blue space was was not far behind. And a lot of this research is happening in England and coastal communities in England. And what they're finding is essentially, I think every landscape does this, but in my from my perspective, the ocean and coast does it so well is there, there's a way that the oceans and coasts really evokes all, all of our senses, whether it's the sound of the waves or you know, the pattern that, that they present that you see in the ocean or just the feeling of like that cool salt water on your skin. And I think they're finding that every single piece of that can really have a, a beneficial restorative effect on our, on our mood and you know, make us feel a bit better. And so when we you know, spend the day at the ocean, it all sort of comes together in a sense, if you're someone who enjoys the ocean, of course, I know not everyone does. So yeah, it's, it's a super, I think that a lot of people actually name that as their favorite landscape, just in the informal, you know, sort of research I've done on that. So there's definitely something about the ocean coast that is, that is appealing to us. Absolutely. And in your book for each section, just to reiterate, you have some practices and I, I liked it because again, I, one of the takeaways from my book is that you are just taking a stance for making outdoors accessible for any amount of time for anybody. And I love that. And you broke your practices into kind of like, if you've got five minutes, you can do this. And then if you've got longer, et cetera, there's more. So I like to ask if we have five minutes to spend by the water, what's something we could try to maybe deepen our connection and be more intentional about that experience? Yeah, definitely. It was definitely important for me to make sure that everything in the book felt very accessible and like you could get started right away. So I think even if you had just five minutes, you know, maybe you have access to to coast or even a coastal view. One thing you could do is a sit spot meditation is something that was shared with me from this incredible surfer named Iski Britton. And she said that it was one of her favorite things to do by the water. And you know, essentially you can start with your eyes closed to sort of get a feel for the, the environment that you're in and then gradually open them and start just by looking and pulling your awareness towards your immediate 
surroundings. So the the sand maybe beneath your feet and what you can see right in front of you, and then sort of gradually work your way out until you're taking in the whole scene. And I think that gradually sort of just expanding your your awareness can be a really nice way to feel those senses and feel how the environment is is changing and just makes you, I think, more more mindful and aware of, of your surroundings and then, you know, hopefully opens you up to all the all the restorative benefits of the coast. Absolutely. And re- really anchoring you to the present and pleasantness of what you're experiencing. What if we've got an hour by the by the coaster or the water? What's something that give just to give a chance for people to kind of understand what's something we could try? Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing that I share in every chapter and it was very intentional that I did this was journaling prompts to sort of help you reflect on what that landscape means to you. And I think that that's a nice activity to do if you do have a bit more time, just because it can reveal a lot, I think, about just you and your sort of your journey through this world and why you feel connected to certain places over others. And people, for better or worse, I think they do tend to have very strong associations with the coast, whether it's a place that they absolutely love or maybe are feel fearful of. So yeah, I would encourage people to journal on sort of what, you know, coastal memories they have or what sort of associations they have with this landscape and just see see what comes up. And if you can do that by the water and hear those sounds as you're writing, all the better. And for those of us who are listening to this and are jonesing to get to the ocean even more, but it's not in the cards, you still have some things that we could maybe try from home and just channeling that that ocean energy. So tell, tell, give us an example of that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, again, I think the sensory aspect of the ocean is really special and unique. And there have been some cool studies to show that even listening to the sounds of waves can be very restorative. And that's something I do, you know, just in my apartment as I'm working, it just have it on in the background, just as a way to sort of settle the mind. Things like white noise machines are are based on those sort of noises. So it would make sense that, you know, having that on the background can be can be nice. I would also say that there's this really fascinating field of research called biophilic design and it's all about how to sort of you know welcome the natural environment into our our built environment and you know marry find ways to marry the two and when I first started speaking to people in that space a lot of them would recommend getting water features for the home which I thought was kind of funny at first but they they said that that's just such a great way to really bring the outdoors in and it can be as small as you know a little tabletop fountain or or something like that just to get that sort of noise and to see that flow in your environment seems to be very helpful so that's one thing I still have not done but it's it's on my list for the future well don't worry I've already decided that we're getting my husband a bird feeder (laughs) I mean I'm sorry a a bird a water feature like bird water feature for a backyard for Father's Day so yeah it, it's it's interesting, but I just love how you again you're you're with us. You want us to find this connection and not and, and work with what we have where we are. So I really felt that throughout the whole book. Speaking of where we are, I also live somewhere where there's ice and snow, and oftentimes people in my area have a challenging season getting through that time. So. I want to, again, read a little bit about what you wrote about that landscape, and then we can 
unpack some of the practices. So for ice and snow, something you wrote was, while not a landscape in itself, snow and its relatives, ice, sleet, and so forth, can turn any natural scene into a new place entirely. Of all the weather patterns, ice and snow are two of the most likely to keep Americans, myself very much included, huddled inside. Like animals, we hibernate for much of the snowy seasons. But some initial investigation on white space concludes that we'd be better off getting out into it more. So tell me about this investigation and the psychological case for getting ourselves outside, even if it's snowy. Yeah, definitely. So I'm so with you. You know, I live in New York City and I am from the Northeast originally, but still have not developed that love for snow in my, my first years on this earth. So writing this chapter was really fun because I think it sort of caused me to reframe my perspective on it a bit. But so yes, that that initial research, the study that I referenced about Americans staying inside, it, it was just, you know, to show that I think it was specifically packed exercise, but people tend to not exercise outdoors much in winter, which makes total sense. But that other research, there hasn't been a ton of work to study snowy landscapes, I should say, but the work that has been done, the main study was out of University of Michigan and obviously a very cold place in the winter. And they sent a group of people out onto a nature walk in winter, uh, the same nature walk that they had done during the warmer summer months, and found that while the participants didn't rate the walk as being as positive, they still returned with the same increase in short-term memory and attention and sort of cognitive restoration. So I think that was sort of an important place to start of, yes, not everyone will find this an enjoyable landscape to get out into necessarily, but that doesn't mean it can't still be very beneficial to do so as long as you are prepared. Of course, I wouldn't want to send anyone outside in like shorts or whatever, but uh, just as long as you know what you're getting into, it can be really special. Yes, absolutely. I think even though we might resist it and we might be like, oh, I don't know, is this going to be miserable? Just having that science that says, even if uh, it's easy to be happy when you're, you know, today was beautiful. I was walking outside. It's sunny. Even if you don't have that same experience of that happy connection, easy connection that it it's, it was just interesting for me to think a little bit more deeply about how it's still really beneficial for your mind and body, obviously. All right. So more snow, just to lean into a little bit of your, you know, this does touch into the spiritual and different parts of the book. So tell me a a little bit about how you think the snow challenges us to stay in the present. So this train of thought just came from when I was thinking about the way that New York City changes when it snows. I mean, it really is the one time I feel like when the city is quiet and, you know, there aren't really cars on the road, there aren't as many people out walking around and it really takes on a new, a new form. So that sort of sense of, of quiet and silence was, was sort of a main theme of, of this chapter and exploring why quiet might be uncomfortable for some people, but it also can be very beneficial to, you know, carve out time to go into a, a, a soft, quiet, snowy landscape and really you know, use it as a moment of of mindful reflection. So I had a lot of fun doing interviews for this one. I talked to like a silence researcher who studied at Harvard and an acoustic ecologist and yeah, hearing their perspective on sort of the potential of silence was, was really fascinating. 
Yes. There, yes. That is a really interesting. And again, it was just something I hadn't thought about as much in terms of why we, it just, I love how you are looking at each season and there's different ways to like get out and enjoy. So with that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the snowy wintry practices, uh, just cause I think that it's fun for people to have those in mind for whenever it snows in their territory. So if we've got five minutes and we're grudgingly zipping up our coats, give us something that'll inspire us to get out there and, and play. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think that one sort of quick one that can be fun to do, and this comes from the the uh, acoustic ecologist who I just mentioned, Gordon Hunton. He's really, really incredible. But you know, he provided the practice of going out and sort of seeing how the different ways that you hear the natural environment around you. So he recommended going out and closing your eyes if you feel comfortable, and then listening to hear the sound that feels like furthest away from you and really honing on that. And then, you know, spending a minute there and then maybe shifting to the most faint or quiet noise that you can hear in your immediate surroundings. And then also just tuning into spending a minute there and then tuning into a sound that you can hear but not see. Like I love that idea. So something like the wind and just sort of playing around with the way that you attune to the different sounds in your environment. I think it's something you can do in any landscape. I know it's another popular practice with with practices like forest bathing, but I think ice and snow, it's a really unique opportunity just because it might force you to listen a bit harder if there aren't as many noises around you. Absolutely. And what if we have an hour, we've geared up, we're bundled, we've mentally made that decision, we've committed. (laughs) What if we have an hour to go out and enjoy the snow? What should we try? So I think this one, this is an idea that I explored a bit in my first book, which is called The Spirit Almanac, which was split up by seasons and it was about like the self-care opportunities of every season. But I think winter, you know, a lot of times we see it as a time of real, like I said in the book, hibernation or just sort of quiet stillness and stagnation, maybe you could say. And I think one nice exercise can be to head out on your winter walk with an awareness towards the life that's happening around you and seeing, you know, what critters are, are still out there doing their thing or what plants have sort of persevered through the the wintry weather just does a reminder that like things are always happening under every moment. And I think we can learn a lot from like the cycles of, of the seasons. And even though winter isn't as productive or energetic of a time necessarily, it's still a nice reminder that like life continues on and there's always something to see, even if it feels like nothing is is happening. Beautiful. I love all these practices and thank you for giving listeners a chance to absorb and experience them so they can put those to use. Like you said, as as early as, as today, is there anything else? Cause I know you do talk about urban areas a little bit, and I actually, I want to share a line from, from that section. Cause you say with a shift in perspective and a willingness to explore we recognize that nature doesn't have to be way out there. More often than not, it's already waiting right here in front of us. So we talked about cities a little bit, but I just wondered if in general or specific to cities, if there is one or two more specific practices that you feel like people would really benefit from incorporating into their lives immediately. Yeah. I mean, I think the cities chapter 
was really eye-opening for me just because, you know, I spoke with a lot of researchers who focus on the value of getting outdoors. And you know, I think I sort of assumed going into it that maybe they would want to encourage people to head out to like more wild spaces. But what I found was really the opposite. You know, I think every every researcher who's really steeped in the space sees a lot of value in just exploring the urban environment as well. And you know, they would say again and again, like there's nature everywhere, even in city environments, and it can be harder to find. But that doesn't mean it's not it's not there. It's definitely inequitably distributed, which is a whole nother conversation. But I think that reminder in and of itself it can be you know helpful for city dwellers like you and me just to sort of help root us in our place and connect to the nature that we do have access to so one exercise that i might recommend for people who live in city environments is to go on what i uh, think of as an urban hike i talked to a through hiker who told me about this and i loved the concept but it's just it's essentially a walk, but it but it makes it a little bit more intentional and mindful. And the hiker who I spoke to said that she likes to make themes for her urban walks. So maybe she tries to, you know, see every bookstore in a neighborhood or that's sort of like her route. Or she'll actually seek out steep places. So she'll make it more of like a, a quote unquote like mountainous hike. I don't know, but just thinking about like the city environment as a natural environment. And that simple reframing can be fun. It's a new way to really see and experience your city. Even it can be as simple as like seeing where, you know, the patches of green are on your like Google Maps and, you know, visiting new one in your area. I think just, again, maybe it goes back to that sense of like childhood exploration as well. Just being curious about the world around you, I think, can lead to real moments of discovery and awe. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are coming up against time, but I always end my interviews with asking my guests, what should women be asking themselves more? But I just want to shift this slightly for you and ask, as it relates to our connection and return to nature, what's one question women should be asking themselves more? It's a great question. I think maybe it could be just as simple as like, what is my place in my environment? I think it's very important to to get out and explore, but then once you come home, maybe asking yourself, like, what, what are you giving your landscape in return and how are you using your unique skills and passions to really give back to the, the environment that, is, that has given you so much? So I think we all have something so valuable to offer, you know, the environmental movement. So I would just encourage your listeners to think about what that could be for them. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing this insight on your beautiful book. I'm sure people will want to follow you for more and read the book. So tell us where we can find you. Yeah. So my website is just my name, emilelli.com. Instagram is also my name. (laughs) So pretty easy. Yeah. Return to Nature is available wherever books are sold. And you can find a lot of my writing on mindbodygreen.com, which is where I'm the sustainability editor. Amazing. Well, thank you, Emma. I really enjoyed our conversation. I am already carving more time for getting outside into my day. So your book was an inspiration and I am really excited to share this. Oh, I love to hear that. Thanks again for having me, Whitney. My pleasure. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at WhitneyWoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.